You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Welcome to the Strong Towns Podcast. Today we have special guest Pascalina Azarello. She is a painter, public muralist, educator, community advocate, and also happens to be the sister of Max Azarello, uh, my colleague at Strong Towns. So we're really excited to share this interview with her where we discuss the value of public art, um, her past experiences creating public art in several cities, and the community engagement process that happens throughout that. So please enjoy this interview as part of Public Art Week at Strong Towns, and make sure to head to our website and see all of the other stuff that we are publishing this week, all about public art, and join the conversation. Thanks so much for listening. All right, here's the interview. I wanted to start out with some background. So your website describes you as a painter, muralist, educator, and community advocate. Um, that's quite a list, and I get the sense that you're a pretty interdisciplinary person. What led you to work in those different media? So my entire life, I have loved to draw and paint and make. And when I was a senior in high school in 1992, I was painting my very first mural. It was in a cafe at Wellesley College. And the week that I began my mural, the Rodney King verdict was announced. And it was the first time that our country had seen something or experienced something in that particular way. The fact that there was brutality being videotaped. And it was really incredible. I was a senior in high school, but I was doing this mural on a college campus. And it was really remarkable um, and made a real impression on me to feel the energy of the collective response um, of the students and faculty um, and then going into Boston and being part of demonstrations. And that experience, not just what had happened, but the response in particular, really made its way into my mural. So I had submitted a sketch and the sketch was approved, but with what was happening, you know, socially and collectively, it really influenced what I made. And so right from the very beginning, it certainly made an impression and it really helped me understand the impact of public art in a way that I had certainly known growing up in Los Angeles, seeing the more than 200 murals getting made uh, in preparation for the Los Angeles Olympics. But it, it was really pretty incredible to experience that, you know, myself as an artist. And I think the fact that it was at that particular time in my life really kind of set, you know, it kind of like helped guide the path um, that I would continue to work on. Um, so I really love making murals. And this was something that I continued to do throughout college and did my first outdoor public mural when I graduated in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and just really appreciated being outdoors, being in public spaces. It was just so clear 
how much people want to be involved as neighborhoods are changing. And so that was what was really interesting to me, um, painting my first outdoor mural, is that I was just priming it. You know, I picked a, a yellow primer and everybody just stopped and said, you know, oh, what's going on and this and that. And it really, you know, every now and then I'm, I feel reminded that we're, you know, creatures living in habitats and, you know, someone splashes in the pond and all the frogs like want to know what's happening. And so that was very interesting to me. And certainly in, you know, the decades now that have followed, it's something that I really appreciate and have kind of incorporated into the way that I approach making public art. So locating myself in a public space and beginning to make marks and, you know, to inspire a conversation and then really collecting and gathering stories from people who have a wide variety of relationships to that particular place and collecting those stories. And I often will create visual narratives based on what it is um, I'm learning. And so, you know, there's a whole community engagement piece through that. I've done a lot of work with teenagers and college students, both as a professor and as a muralist. So there's a real youth development component to um, my work as well. And then it was through making art that I kind of unexpectedly ended up in the realm of nonprofits. It's been really, you know, interesting and and gratifying to realize how my experience as a public muralist really prepared me for the work I do, um, both in nonprofits and now in the city of East Hampton, Massachusetts. Do you have a specific process that you've used in the past for getting that neighborhood input before doing a mural or while doing a mural? Or does that, has that just happened pretty organically? Well, there, you know, every project is different and it really depends, you know, the nature of how the project came to be will certainly have a lot of influence into the process that takes place. So oftentimes what has happened is I will um, work independently and I will approach either property owners. I also for many years did a lot of murals on the temporary walls that surround construction sites throughout New York City. So I would be working um, directly with a developer I normally, and for the large majority of the murals that I've done, I really prefer to have a great deal of freedom in terms of what it is that I am painting and working independently and kind of speaking directly with either property owners or developers has so far yielded a a pretty good deal of freedom. You know, as part of the proposal, there is a community engagement piece. And sometimes it happens um, more informally, you know, like beginning to make marks and then gathering input. And then sometimes it's more of, you know, the, the most extensive community process that I was ever involved in was my first public mural in Tucson, Arizona. It was pretty incredible. It was a six foot tall wall that was 630 feet long. So two football fields long. And it was a sound barrier wall. And I applied with two friends and colleagues. I was the painter, 
One was a metal sculptor and one was a tile maker. And the three of us put a proposal together. We were going to hire a landscape architect. We were going to plant 200 native plants and trees. We were going to build a bus shelter and create shade. You know, it was a very involved, uh, we were going to, you know, do outreach at a local high school, have students who were interested in working with us apply to be a part of their of our team and give them a real, you know, support them and their visions to really incorporate their ideas and their mark um, into the wall. And all of this happened. It was an incredible project. And while we were unanimously approved by the panel and they had something at the public library where you could cast a vote to get like the public opinion, you know, it was across the board. Um, They brought us on. And, you know, what happened was there was some concern from the people who lived in the immediate neighborhood. And again, you know, there was something about experiencing change and not feeling involved in that process. And it really was, you know, such a an opportunity. We all kind of took several steps back. Um, we ended up doing um, a series of six months of community meetings and really went through a very deep and engaging process. Um, And we asked people what it was they wanted to see, what was their connection to the neighborhood, and why was this artwork that was really kind of playful and innocuous so challenging? You know, why this kind of response? And through those meetings, which people really stepped up and were really, you know, brave and courageous and shared so much. Um, we learned a lot about the history and why this particular project reminded them of another process, you know, more than a decade prior that didn't work out so well um, for the neighborhood. And so, you know, we all found a common ground. We really invested. I mean, it was a full six months. And the entire project um, became a two and a half year project. And it was a lot of, you know, a lot of square footage to cover. And it was absolutely remarkable. Um, That neighborhood actually is a direct outcome of that particular project formed a neighborhood association. It's called the Limberloft Neighborhood Association. It's on Stone Avenue in Tucson, Arizona. And they are this award-winning Neighborhood Association, they built, um, they helped get eco homes built across the street. Um, more and more people walk. All those trees we planted behind the wall so that they could grow and canopy over the wall. They now canopy over the wall. So we made a whole, you know, it's like a few blocks of shade. That was really my first time. I was young. I was, geez. 25 years old. I mean, I was just a kid and it was such a tremendous learning experience that really influenced everything I did next. Um, That process, having it be completely intergenerational, I remember some of those major breakthroughs came from high school students asking people who had lived in the neighborhood since the 40s you know, why was this so threatening? Why was this so challenging? Those questions asked by those young people really, you know, yielded the 
the content um, and the, you know, really personal um, kind of stories that were able to be shared that really created movement, you know, in our process. So that really just played a tremendous impact on me and the work that I uh, went on to do next. That's amazing, especially to have that be your first experience and to turn out so promisingly and have such an impact on the neighborhood. That's, wow, that's mm-hmm. really amazing. You know, a lot of the work that you all do, it really was a testament to, you know, I think a lot of times, you know, whether people are planners or, you know, community advocates, anyone kind of going into communities and trying to, you know, elevate and reveal the information and the energy in a space, you know, it's a real testament to investing that time to really do that internal work, you know, it ends up being uh, just such a much more efficient process because the information is really reliable. Mm-hmm. And so it's something, you know, I've gone on to teach courses that are related to that. And it's something that I um, always try to, you know, share with my students. So you mentioned your work on construction sites in New York and doing murals on those um, walls. And I read a bit about that in preparation for this. It sounded really interesting. Um, How did that get started for you? I've always been interested in construction sites as the physical location where changes take place. You know, like real transformative change, not just because a new building is being built, but because of, you know, who moves out of a neighborhood, who moves into a neighborhood, like what are those dynamics and how do they influence our lives and how do we as people influence that happening? I lived in the neighborhood of Dumbo, Brooklyn, starting back in 2001. And I was there for a few years and certainly saw a lot of changes taking place in the neighborhood. And one of those was, at the time, it was going to become the tallest residential tower in Brooklyn. And it was uh, there at the corner of J Street and Front Street. And, you know, there was a big hole in the ground and there was a big site. And the ground had already, you know, been dug and this was very much going to happen. And I lived on that block. And every day I'd watch the site you know, transform little by little. I had been collecting discarded wood from nearby construction sites and they were piling up in my studio and they eventually turned into 500 panels. And I just started painting seeds, flowers, and thank yous on them. And I went out into the night one night and I set up hundreds of these panels all around the entire construction site for this gigantic building about to be built. And the next day, what happened is I got off the subway, which was right across the street from the site, and I saw that someone had bolted the panels to the wall, to the temporary wall that surrounded the construction site. So I was very curious about this. Um, oftentimes I do, I would do these like public shrines like this and little by little people would take the panels and that was kind of part of what it was all about. But I had never seen someone install them, you know, on the wall. And so I inspected, uh, how this was done and it was very clearly done by 
you know, some pretty serious power tools. And I thought, oh, my God, the construction workers here at this site bolted these panels with flowers and seeds and thank yous on them on a construction site wall. Like, that's kind of interesting, you know, like there's a little conversation happening here. And so I thought it was really awesome. And later that night, I was at a restaurant that's on the same block. And a friend came in and said that someone had set up a little jar that people were putting money in, like, by the wall with the panels. And it was like this little offering. I mean, it was, you know, actually the middle of the night, you know, in Brooklyn in 2006. It's like, that's not common. Like, this is interesting. So the next morning I got up, I was, you know, got up bright and early. I was kind of all excited and I wanted to go to the site and I wanted to meet the foreman because I had always had this idea to paint, you know, kind of in the spirit of the grass growing through the sidewalk, to paint little flowers around the entire perimeter of the fence. And so I introduced myself um, to the foreman. His name was Jimmy Vita. And um, I introduced myself as the person who had painted the flowers. And he said, Pasqualina, thank you so much. We love the flowers. And I said, well, it makes me really happy. And I've had a, this idea, and I know you guys are really busy, and I'm guessing for all sorts of reasons it would not be possible to do this, but I just want to put it out there. And I told him my idea about the flowers. And he loved the idea. He checked with the union manager, and right that day, like there and then, he handed me a hard hat, and he told me to do my thing. And I was really happy. Yeah, I was really happy. I couldn't believe it. And um, I was just having a ball. And, you know, a lot of the workers would come by and they're telling me, you know, some of their artistic hobbies. And one of them had a daughter studying painting at Brooklyn College. And they'd bring me iced tea. And it was, like, very paternal and sweet. The next day, I got a phone call from the real estate developer who was overseeing the building of this project. And my first thought was, I must be in trouble. Like, this must be a very bad idea. Um, He wanted to meet for lunch. And instead of being a bad idea, it was a really good idea. And he wanted more um, art around the fence. And, you know, I had lived in the neighborhood, so I knew that for the two and a half years leading up to the start of this project, there was a lot of community pushback. Um, There were a lot of community meetings, people expressing their concern with such a big high rise um, in our neighborhood. And, you know, so there had, there had been a process and at the end of the day, this building was being built. So, you know, it was kind of past the point of, of anything around that, you know, happening any differently. And because, you know, the fence was there and the site was there, I really wanted to utilize it as a way to, you know, continue a conversation and to gather information and and to also see what happens. You know, what happens if the walls around a construction site get painted and, you know, how does that influence, you know, people's experiences and 
Um, you know, and certainly as a painter, it was, you know, a huge canvas and I was really excited about it. That was the first project. They gave me full, you know, creative leeway, um, to do what it was I wanted to do. It was a really interesting relationship because our reasons for wanting to work together were very different reasons. And yet we were all getting just what we wanted. And that was kind of a big, you know, lesson and takeaway from that. And I continued working with that company and then a number of others um, for the next number of years. In the fall of 2008, um, when the real estate market started to go on its downturn, um, I had a year's worth of construction site murals indefinitely postponed. I had had three pretty large-scale murals lined up, and one after the next, like literally within one week, it was the third week of September 2008, it had a year's worth of work just like canceled. And it was when I had to really think differently about what I was doing. I had um, been living as an artist for 14 years at that point, and I had had a very, very, you know, lucky run. As a result of that, I unexpectedly found myself um, volunteering in the realm of nonprofits, and one thing led to another, and that volunteering opportunity turned into becoming the executive director of a nonprofit in New York called Recycle a Bicycle. And it was kind of at that time that I began to employ my skills um, in community engagement, uh, youth development, you know, in ways that were really different than making a mural and operating on a very different scale and on a much more integrated way. But I learned just how much, you know, those values could translate in the nonprofit realm. So that was kind of how I ended up going on to do that. So with these murals at construction sites, what happens to them once the building is finished and the fences come down? Well, that's a really good question. And I was painting that first fence and it dawned on me because I had only ever painted on walls before that were, you know, for all intents and purposes, permanent. And I thought, oh my gosh, like, wait a minute, what happens to this? I mean, it was gigantic. That first one that I did, it was three blocks around the four blocks, you know, like it was three sides of the block. Yeah. So it was like really big. So I had spoken to the developer and he said, well, they just get like thrown on a truck and they end up in other sites. Like they just get reused and repurposed. And I said, well, could I make a little amendment in my contract and that they belong to me when they're done. And he was like, sure. And so I stored them at a friend's warehouse right down the street. And what I ended up doing is I cut them um, into smaller panels. And I had an exhibit at a gallery across the street from the site. So when the walls came down, there was a restaurant gallery and it overlooked the new building. And so I had a show and sold, you know, I sold them for 
relatively, you know, little money. And so that the conversation, it just like continued. It just, it was like hundreds, you know, and hundreds of these pieces um, of that fence are now in various locations all over New York. That's amazing. That's such a cool conclusion. Definitely better than them just disappearing on a truck somewhere. Yeah, and that was the only one of two times that I kept the panels and I normally would just kind of let it go. You know, I kind of got so into the temporary nature of it. Yeah. And then it would be very funny because, you know, years would go by and I would see one of my panels on another site in another part of the city, like sometimes upside down or, you know, friends would take pictures when they would see them. So they would kind of make their way um, around. That's so funny. <laughs> So currently you serve as the city arts coordinator for East Hampton, Massachusetts. Is that right? That is correct. So what does that job entail? Is this um, using similar skills or is it pretty different more on the community uh, side of things? Yeah, it absolutely employs all of these skills. In fact, um, it's a really incredible place, East Hampton, Massachusetts. It's an amazing effort that the city of East Hampton um, puts into the arts and culture of the city. And, you know, on a personal level, it's incredibly gratifying because it's the first time that all of these, you know, skills and experiences that I'm telling you about are truly, um, they get to inhabit the same role at the same time. It's been a inc- pretty incredible transition. Um, I I was living in Brooklyn, New York for the last 15 years, and I moved uh, up to Western Massachusetts in September. And in mid-November, I became the City Arts Coordinator for East Hampton City Arts, which is part of the municipal government of East Hampton. This role is part of the city planning department, and it was started, um, it's pretty unique and unusual. The city of East Hampton has uh, 16,000 people in it, so it's a very small city. The city planner, 11 years ago, you know, there was a lot of different um, public arts initiatives, and he thought how valuable it would be to have someone within the city who was part of seeing those processes through and that they could work together, which is a pretty, you know, as a public artist, um something that is so it's unusual for a public muralist and a city planner to be in the same conversation at the same time. And certainly for the like beginning, middle and end of a project, you know, this was the vision and it started 11 years ago as a very part-time position. And over the course of the last 11 years, it's really grown and has been supported at the full-time position. There are a number of committees um, since it's part of the city and there are a good group of, um, you know, between 50 and a hundred volunteers who help make all of the programming and events that we do, uh, able to happen. So it's a pretty unique experience and one that's just, you know, really directly influences the, the richness and vitality of the arts and culture here in East Hampton. So what are some of those programs that you're running or a part of? So every month we have a monthly art walk. So on the second Saturday of every month, 
all of the different, um, there are several galleries in town. There are also several businesses and studios that will show work each month. Um, so on any given month, there are between 10 and 15 venues that are hosting events for Art Walk. And on that one night alone in a three-hour period, you know, we'll see between 300 and 450 people coming into a gallery, which even in big cities, yeah, you don't, it's pretty unusual to see that much traffic in a show, like over an entire month, let alone in one night. So it just, you know, again, it just kind of shows how dedicated and involved um, this community is. And we also have annual festivals. We just had last month our annual book fest where all of downtown East Hampton becomes activated with various performances and readings and exhibitions and uh, a zine fest, you know, and, and again, it's kind of happening simultaneously in many different venues throughout downtown. And then we have um, coming up next month, our annual street festival with a twist. It's called Cultural Chaos and it takes place in um, the Cottage Street Cultural District. And it's a way to really activate and elevate our cultural district and engage all of the different local businesses and artists and people who are involved in a daily way. And then to really celebrate all that effort and hard work um, at our annual street festival. It seems like a lot of the cities that I've lived in or just researched have a local arts organization or, you know, various different nonprofits uh, that are interested in the arts. But what would you see as the advantage of having that arts coordinator position as part of the local government versus a nonprofit on the side? Yeah, you know, it's so interesting because, you know, like you're saying, I am the same. I've, you know, been involved in different arts-related nonprofits, um, both as an employee and as an artist. Um, I had never been a part of something like this before, and it has been really interesting to get to know. Working within a municipal government, there are a tremendous amount of resources, you know, that I have at my fingertips and that this community has at their fingertips because of it. So working with planners, you know, for the street festival, working with um, the Department of Public Works, you know, working with the parks department, um, working with schools. For example, one of the things that ECA is piloting this year is a new um, youth arts education program that will take place this summer. And as I was starting to kind of you know, just draft out the overall vision of this, I thought, you know, it's pretty important that this is in line with East Hampton Public Schools. And what, you know, what is the superintendent thinking about? What are our local educators thinking about? Like, what would be, programmatically speaking, something that would be additive and, and you know, supplemental to an already strong curriculum? And so it was just really refreshing to be able to go talk to the school superintendent and go talk to teachers and engage in a way that, you know, was just very like, we are all part of the same effort here. And we're all like working toward shared goals. It's interesting. There's a certain kind of efficiency um, that is able to happen 
I find here working within um, the municipal government of East Hampton. And then we also have, you know, a tremendous amount of flexibility. I, you know, in New York was always part of nonprofits. We would have community partnerships all the time with city agencies. And here, I'm just on the other side of that kind of partnership. So even though we're a city, you know, partnership and community partnership is really valued here in East Hampton. So there are a number of local businesses and local nonprofit community organizations or, you know, our Chamber of Commerce. And, um, you know, so those partnerships are still, you know, alive and well and really able to happen. It's been new for me. And it's something that I've really um, appreciated. Do you find that it's easier to get permission to do things? Like, I, you know, when people try to have street festivals or, like, create public art, it seems like there's always a lot of permission processes you have to go through with local government to do that. Is being in the local government an asset? Does it make that process faster? Or do you still have to do all the permits and everything just like anybody else would? Well, there are definitely procedures in place as there should be, you know, and as makes sense for any kind of, you know, entity, whether it's a government entity or an organizational entity. Um, But yeah, there is a kind of access and availability as far as, you know, information goes and procedures. And I think it really helps that the city is so supportive of arts and culture. There's a real vested interest in, you know, the arts and culture of East Hampton um, thriving and being successful and being vibrant and growing. So I think that really lends itself. I think that if the local government felt otherwise about initiatives that any one of its groups were um, involved with, that there's a real, there's a real interest in having um, things happen and thrive and grow. So yeah, there's been a tremendous amount of support. What would you say to someone who's hoping to get their city to just care more about art in general and be more supportive? You know, probably not all cities are going to be able to have like a full full time position like yours, um, which sounds so cool. What are some ways to just encourage local governments to care about art um, a little bit more? If they're looking to take something on internally. You know, I'm, I'm a big fan of starting small and getting to know how something is happening, making changes and growing things slowly. So, you know, that was very much the case with the East Hampton City Arts coordinator position. You know, it started as a five hour a week position 11 years ago, you know, and it took, you know, a good seven years before it was a full time position. So, you know, it's a good example of how I think um, identifying goals and articulating goals is really important. So what are the goals for art in a particular city? And then I think it's really important to attach to those goals a budget. you got to put it on the budget. You know, I think people get really frustrated because, you know, and conversations can happen for years because people want the same thing. But in the throes of the day-to-day, If there aren't resources to support changes, right, like adding something new requires, it's not just adding something new, but there's a little bit of a change in culture. There's a change in um, what we value. There's a change in what we're prioritizing. And I feel like 
the surest way to get something done is to make it a line item on a budget and to be reasonable about it. It doesn't have to be, you know, you can paint a mural for $500 and you can paint a mural for $50,000. And either way, it could be a great mural. You know, it's just that a process will look really different. Get started, you know, do something. Even if it's a small budget, it means you're accountable. And it means the people that you're serving and the people that you're working for are all clear on what the goals are and what is required to make that happen. I'm a big fan of setting goals and having a budget reflect those goals. I want to finish with a more broad philosophical question, which is how, what are the biggest values that art brings to communities, neighborhoods, towns? Why is art worth investing in? Yeah, well, I think it's really important. It's like, why do we do what we do? And why is it important? I think what public art can do and does do is it has a tremendous potential to engage people and to do so in a way that ensures a sense of belonging. Um, whether people are involved in creating um, an object or a mural or whether they're involved in appreciating it or um, being inspired by it or seeing it um, happen and get made, I think that there's something very special um, that happens when people can see neighborhoods transforming and changing and have, have an opportunity to being a part of that change and having a voice and a vision and are able to make a mark in that happening. So I think that public art, you know, is it's a platform. It's a platform for engagement. It's a platform for intergenerational engagement. It's an opportunity to bring people together who might not otherwise be together um, in the day-to-day. And so I think that it's very exciting. I've been a part of, you know, so many um, public mural projects and every experience is really different, but every experience is, you know, a tried and true transformation. And People want to participate. People want to be engaged. And so I think creating uh, opportunities for that to happen and to really be thoughtful about what that level of engagement could look, could look like. Like, what are the options here? You know, you can tell everyone to paint something blue or you can say, what do we want to see? What's important to you? What do you want to share with this neighborhood? Like, what do you care about? What are your questions? And like to kind of go through a process and when people can feel their own voices and ideas, you know, as part of that and to be involved in creating it, um, something very powerful takes place. Cool. Well, thank you so much for talking to me. I really appreciate it. I've learned a lot and you are an inspiring person for sure. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you for all that you do and for creating these platforms to share all these stories. Awesome. Okay, take care. All right, you too. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye-bye. We need your help. If you think the Strong Town's message is important, don't keep it to yourself. Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org.
Jesse times require what? Drastic measures, yes! Who said that? They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made the city? I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.